0: All right, Book of Judges, starting a new book. That's like finding a new good restaurant, you know, like, wow, we're going to come back here. It's exciting. So we're in the Book of Judges, a completely new chapter in the nation of Israel. It is going to be a 340-year time span in the nation of Israel. I had to get a fact check from my wife, Megan, right before the sermon. For context and contrast, the United States is 245 years old. And we're about to study a portion of the nations of Israel's history that is 340 years, so a long time. And it's going to seem, as we read it, like things are happening right after another, after another, and after another. And in a sense, that's true. But I'll try and do a good job of building the background and those gaps because there's long periods where nothing happens, and then all of a sudden, this judge comes along and. If you think of the word judge, you might be thinking of a guy or a gal in the black robes. And that's not what that word translated means. That word translated judge is heroic leader or deliverer. And so the book of Judges is a 340-year period of the nation of Israel where heroic judges are brought out time and time and time again by the empowering of God to deliver the nation of Israel and you only need to have a deliverer if there's problems, and we're going to see that. So let's begin with a word of prayer, and then we're going to read the first seven verses of the book of Judges and dive in. Lord, thank you so much for your word. We pray that you would continue to guide us, to lead us, to grow us up in your word. Help us to avoid the issues and the problems that we see here in your, in your word in the book of Judges, but also help us to be deliverers. Help us to be leaders. Help us to stand up in a time when others are doing differently. And so we lift these things up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1, Now after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall be first to go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Indeed, I have delivered the land into his hand. So Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me to my allotted territory, that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I will likewise go with you to your allotted territory. And Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they killed 10,000 men at Bezek. And they found Adoni Bezek in Bezek and fought against him and they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites then Adoni-Bezek fled and they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes and Adoni-Bezek said seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to gather scraps used to gather scraps under my table as I have done so God has repaid me Then they brought him to Jerusalem, and there he died. So we're going to put a couple things into contrast. Joshua has passed away. We just left the book of Joshua. Remember in Joshua's final speech in private with the leaders and in public to the entire nation of Israel, he told them a couple things. Number one, flee from idolatry. Number two, he told them to finish the conquest of the nation of Israel. Don't allow them to stay in the lands that God has given you and then he told them never to depart from the Lord and seek after them remember there in the, uh, his last days he said as for me and my house we will serve the Lord don't follow the idols well here after his death in chapter 1 Israel starts off on the right foot they asked the Lord asked Lord Lord what should we do And the Lord is so gracious. He just tells them, I want you guys, I want the uh, tribe of Judah to go up and to fight the Canaanites. The issue is they've already been told to do that. Why are they asking? Like you were already told to do that. God spoke through Joshua in a prophetic word in the last chapter, but nothing new under the sun. Isn't it interesting how we constantly need reassurance from the Lord? Like He's already told you 37 times, but he's so gracious, he's going to tell you again. And so that's what he does here. Then Judah does what we all do. Okay, well, if I'm going to go, I need a partner. So Judah then gets, in verse 3, said to Simeon, Hey, Simeon, come up and help us. Now, there's nothing wrong with this. There's nothing wrong being told explicitly here in the Scripture. We're going to have some issues here in a little while. So Judah and Simeon get together and they go to war against the Canaanites, specifically against this guy, Adoni Bezek. That name means Lord of Thunder. This guy's a fighter. And when they get into this battle, there are 10,000 deaths in the Canaanite camp. That is a big battle. I don't care what generation or context, that is a lot. The Lord of Thunder. So they follow God's instructions, and God grants them victory. Doesn't that seem like the formula we've been seeing for the chapter after chapter, book after book? Be obedient to the Lord and have victory in the Lord. But when they capture him, what do they do? They cut off his thumbs, and they cut off his big toes. Why do they do that? Well, number one, he can no longer wage war anymore. Can't pull a bow, can't hold a sword, can't march, can't run, can't do any of those things. But did God tell them to do that? No. God told them to wipe them out. And it's hinted there as to why. See, they copied him. He said, yes, 70 kings I've put under my table, I've enslaved, I cut off their thumbs, I cut off their bug toes, and I said, yes, I have won, I've conquered, and now God has done that to me. The issue is that God didn't, didn't tell them to do that. God told them to kick the Canaanites out of the land, to destroy them, and they're already beginning to copy their enemies. They're already to saying, hey, you know, that's kind of a good idea. Let's just do that. And it's kind of harmless here at first. But why do we do that? You see, the Bible tells us that as Christians, we are born again. We are new believers. We have a new life. But we live in the world. We're not supposed to be of the world, but we live in the world. And slowly but surely, we begin to copy the manners and customs of the world, things that are not not exactly ungodly, but they begin us on a slow drift into compromise. Okay, I have... I've been delivered from this sin, and sure, I'm going to render it harmless. I'm going to keep it around, though, because I have liberty. You know, I've obviously defeated it. I've cut off its thumbs and its big toes, but why have it around at all? You know, we have people that have been delivered from alcohol. They they were alcoholics. They were given over to it. The Lord delivered it from them, and now over time, they're beginning to sip on it once in a while. They've cut the thumbs off. They've cut the toes off. Oh, no big deal. It's, it's harmless. It's harmless. Is it? Is it? What is it about these things? And you can fill in the blank about our lives. Why is it that we keep things that once defeated us around, thinking that we have it under control? Don't keep it around. Make no provision for the flesh. Now, this is just to start. See how good we started? And we're already beginning to drift, and we're going to apply this. Now, let's go after a little chunk of Scripture here. We're going to read verses 8 through 20, and we're going to start seeing some things already. Verse 8, Now the children of Judah fought against Jerusalem and took it. They struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the children of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who dwelt in the mountains, in the south, and in the lowland. Then Judah went against the Canaanites who dwelt in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kirjath Arba, and they killed Shisha, Aimen, and Talmai. From there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kirjath Sefer. Then Caleb said, Whoever attacks Kirjath Sefer and takes it, to him I will give my daughter Aksa as wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it. So he gave him his daughter Aksa as wife. Now it happened when she came to him that she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey. And Caleb said to her, What do you wish? So she said to him, Give me a blessing since you have given me land in the south. Give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. Verse 16. Now the children of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up from the city of Palms, that's Jerusalem, with the children of Judah into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the south near Arad, and they went and dwelt among the people. Verse 17. And Judah went with his brother Simeon, and they attacked the Canaanites who inhabited Zepha and utterly destroyed it. So the name of the city was called Ormah. Also Judah took Gaza with its territory, Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. So the Lord was with Judah, and they drove out the mountaineers, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland because they had chariots of iron. And they gave Hebron to Caleb, as Moses had said. Then he expelled them from the three sons of Anak. I misspoke too. I said the city of Palms was Jerusalem. That's Jericho. I'm sorry. I lied to you. That wasn't on purpose though. But notice how the city of Jerusalem fell to Judah. Because I've told you in times past that the Jebusites were going to be in charge of Jerusalem until David drives them out 400 years later. So what happens here? They give the city up. They give it back to the Canaanites. They don't inhabit the land. And we're going to see that here in verse 21, the very next verse. But we have to take a break. We're also going to see that even though they're driving them out of the land, they're driving them out of the land, they can't complete the takeover. They're falling short. They have victory after victory. And you think, wow, they're they're doing pretty good. But then we're seeing them, number one, give up Jerusalem. We're seeing number two, they can't take the lowlands because they had chariots of iron. So these are the Abram's tanks of the Old Testament era. If you just imagine yourself, you're there, you have bronze level uh, weaponry, maybe iron if you're lucky, but only if you stole it from the Philistines because the Jews didn't know at that time how to make it. The Philistines did. And you're there with maybe your leather or wooden shield in your sandals. And imagine... These chariots of iron, a, 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 steel, a steel, iron, this metal that you can't dent, you can't pierce, you can't penetrate it. It's just strong. And these horses are coming at you. And yes, just like you imagined it, just like in the Ben-Hur movies, when the wheels are spinning, they got blades out of the side, and they got guys on top with iron weaponry coming at you, and you're there with your bronze sword or your stolen iron sword and your shield. And those things are just coming through, wiping you out. You can't win. But why can't they win? They, they've been so victorious so many times because they're not seeking after the Lord. See, they took the promise of God and they spoke to God, but you haven't heard them talk to God yet. Lord, how should we defeat the chariots of iron? Not in here. Lord, are you delivering the chariots of iron? Are you delivering the lowlands? No, no, they're trying to do these things in their own power. On Sunday morning, we talked about uh, going in the spirit of the Lord. We talked about how you can go out there rowing that boat, and we talked about how you need to put up the sail. Well, here, the nation of Israel's doing it in their own strength. They're trying to win these battles and do these things on their own. Well, of course, if you're not seeing the application here, you haven't had enough coffee this evening. How many battles are you trying to win in your own flesh? How many victories, how many conversations, how many relationships are you trying to restore? Maybe a relationship with a loved one, maybe with a long lost child or grandchild or friend. Maybe you've gone through some heartache or some trouble, maybe it's financial difficulty, fill in the blank. Maybe a health issue, maybe a diet issue, whatever it is. You try and do it with the Lord's blessing, but without the Lord's empowering. You say, Lord, here's my plan. Do you like my plan? Okay, it's a pretty good plan. Great, I'll come back to you with the results. We'll see how I did. Instead of, Lord, what should I do? How should we handle this? Will you equip me to handle this? Will you give me the strength to handle this? Will you empower me to do this? Lord, will you give me victory in my mind? Will you give me victory over the enemy? Should I wait? Should I go? And step by step, following his leading, because it says we walk by faith and not by sight. How do you walk by faith and not by sight? Have you been in the middle of the night, the power goes out? Can't find your iPhone or your Android, so you can't turn that light on? Or let's just go back in time before those things happened? And it's pitch black. You can't see a foot in front of you. How do you walk? With your hands out, tiptoeing, because you're afraid you're going to stub your toe on something? And you got your feelers out. You're hypersensitive. I don't know where I am. Where's my bed? Where's my spouse? But that's how we should be walking in the faith, constantly reaching out through the Holy Spirit with the Lord. Lord, how should I do this? Where should I go? Instead, we say, Lord, can you flip the lights on for me? Great, I got it. I got it from here. I handle it in my own power. And this is going to be important because we're going to see this over and over and over again. But the point I want you to take home from this portion of Scripture is they are seemingly victorious. They are doing seemingly well from outside, but they're not. But they're not. How many partial victories are you winning in your own flesh and saying, oh, Lord, thank you for giving me that delivery. You know, next time we'll come around and we'll do this other part. Nope. Nope. Seek after the Lord with your whole heart. Okay, now the next section of this portion is Caleb. Caleb is the last living survivor of the wilderness. He is so old, and yet he is still fighting. I mean, if you haven't been told in these last few chapters and books that it doesn't matter how old you are, the Lord is not done using you, here's another reminder. And he's got some family leadership going on. Now, for you astute Bible readers, yes, he is giving away his daughter to a cousin. That's what they did back then, keeping it in the family. But he says, whoever grants delivery, whoever grants victory can have my daughter. Fathers, fathers, you want a son-in-law. Number one, let me remind you, you want a son-in-law. I know you don't want them. You think you don't, but you do. You want a son-in-law. Second, of course, we want a godly son-in-law. And third, we want a son-in-law that is victorious in Christ. He has victorious in Christ. He is leading. He is able to accomplish things in Christ. Forget finances. Forget worldly viewpoint. Forget handsome, tall, articulate. None of that stuff matters. Does he have a relationship with Christ? And is he winning battles for Christ? He doesn't have to win wars yet. He doesn't have to win lots of them. It could be small things. Ladies, young ladies here, if you're looking for a husband, Caleb's right. Caleb says, whoever takes, in verse 12, whoever attacks Kirjath Sephir and takes it, I will give my daughter Aksa for wife. Doers of the word and not hearers only. That's what we're after. That's what we should be encouraging. So again, I'm always preaching to myself. I hope that somebody brings this message up to me when my daughter starts dating people when she's 37. <laughs> you know, because we want to keep it biblical. And so it happens. But then notice, after the victory's done, lady she has a job. She wants to provide for her household. She wants to increase her household. She goes to her father and says, "Can we have the field? Can we have this? Can we do this?" And um, David Guzik, he pointed out, and I want to point out to you too, if you're a Bible student and you want to do some extracurricular activity, there is a great sermon that Spurgeon has about this section looking at her as an example of how we're supposed to be in prayer. And he applies this to prayer and how we're supposed to be asking the Father. And so I'm not even going to touch that with a 10-foot pole because I'm not at that level. So read that one. It's fantastic. I want to skip to verse 20 and it says, and they gave Hebron to Caleb as Moses had said, then he, see that, then he expelled from there the three sons of Anak. Yes, the Anakim. This man is a giant slayer. He is making things happen. Oh, you know, back in my day, you know, when I was a young man walking with the Lord, I did this, we were in the desert, and then we took the promised land, and now I'm in retirement. Nope, this guy doesn't even understand that concept. He's going to be victorious in Christ taking ground. And he doesn't care how big they are, and he doesn't care how many there are. Contrast that, contrast that to we can't take the lowlands because of the iron chariots. Over a hundred years old can slay three Anakim, Anak, three giants. The nation of Israel can't take the the chariots of iron. What is happening here? If we want to have a revival, a great awakening in this country, yes, it will be with the youth. And it will be with them slaying giants for Christ and going after difficult things. And it will be because the fathers of the faith and those that have been around will show them that it can be done. It will work hand in hand, together. You don't need young people deciding they're going to show off to everybody and they'll do it in their own power. You cannot do it in your own power. But here, Caleb is setting a standard. That standard is being met. And then he is meeting and exceeding that standard himself. So I don't care if you're in the youngest people in the room or where's Kevin Icono the oldest people in the room. Just kidding. It doesn't matter what generation you are. You are a part of this. You are a part of what the Lord is doing. And we are to be following him and not in your own power. I can't express that enough. Because, because, prove it to us, Mike. Okay, I'm glad you asked. Verse 22 Verse 22, but the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who inhabited Jerusalem. So the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. And the house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. So the house of Joseph sent men to spy out Bethel. The name of the city was formerly Luz. And when the spies saw a man coming out of the city, they said to him, Please show us the entrance to the city, and we will show you mercy. So he showed them the entrance to the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword. But they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites, built a city, and called his name Luz, which is the name to this day. So the Lord was with them, but did they seek after the Lord? What, do you see any prayer? Do you see any intercession? Are they trying to be led by the Lord? No. The Lord's blessing them because they're, they're following what they've been told previously, but they are not seeking after the Lord. It's very interesting also that it says the house of Joseph. This is one of the few times, if not the only time in Scripture, that Ephraim and Manasseh, the half-tribes, are mentioned singularly as the house of Joseph. Because remember, it's the children of Joseph. They were given Joseph's portion as a tribe. You guys remember that sermon in the past. But they have victory. Why do they have victory? Because the Lord was with them. But I believe in their mind's eye, they thought it was their super smart plan because they spied it out. And they were really witty. And they they remember they interviewed that man and they got the intel that they needed. So obviously it was their excellent intelligence agency that gave them victory. You can see this with the nation of Israel today corporately. We talk about Mossad with whispered tones about how great they are. They ain't that great. The Lord is with them and they have supernatural protection, specifically from an archangel, the archangel. And they have made it through war after war where their survival is at stake. How come? Is it because of their great intelligence community? Is it because of their technology? Is it because of their will to fight because their survival is at stake? Or maybe with more than a dozen nations that are trying to demand that they're wiped out the face of the earth surrounding them, they have supernatural intervention. But I'm just hypothesizing here sarcastically. Well, question, is the Lord with you? Are you seeking after the Lord? Or do you think you're just that smart? You think it's your training and your intelligence, your background, your history, the things you've done in the past that make you who you are in Christ? Or is the Lord with you? Is the Lord with you? Wait till we get to Gideon. We'll talk about special forces then. Save that for later. Verses 27 through 29. However uh-oh, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of beth Shien and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ibliam and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo. That is very important, by the way, if you want to highlight Megiddo there, and its villages, for the Canaanites were determined to dwell in that land. And it came to pass when Israel was strong that they put the Canaanites under tribute but did not completely drive them out. That's a dangerous word. However, victory, partial victory, victory, partial victory did not drive them out, did not drive them out. But they did not, but they did not, but they did not. On your deathbed, if you get the privilege of having one where you can reflect on your past, what will it be said victories that you could have had, but you did not, but you did not. What compromises are you doing today that you will be ashamed of in the future, but you did not because it says it here over and over. What sins are you allowing to take place in your life right now that you're ashamed of and you're saying, well, I've got it under control or even worse yet, what is happening here? We're strong and it'll make us money to not do this. This is for our benefit not to chase them out. It's for our benefit that we make this decision. And yet you're paying, you're getting paid for your own destruction. Getting paid for your own destruction because you're compromising in these areas. It's a decision. And notice that whether they're seemingly successful or absolutely not, no one here is seeking after the Lord. That is going to be a common theme for 400 years, not seeking after the Lord. And we say, oh, that's so bad. Man, they're really bad. If only they could be like New Testament or only they could be like David. Well, look in the mirror. Are you seeking after the Lord? Are you praying and asking him for guidance and direction? Are you being led by the Holy Spirit, or are you asking Him to bless your plans? Where is the tabernacle at this time? Where is the altar? Where are the sacrifices? Where are the priests? Where are the Levites? Where are the cities of refuge? Where are the prophets? They're not seeking after the Lord. And it gets said well, and said well often, The Lord is not as interested in what's happening in the White House as he is what's happening in your house. And we spend more time judging what's going on in the Senate and on Main Street and Wall Street and on television and in the White House and what the beer companies are doing, and you're not even interested in what's happening at your dinner table, what's happening in your own home, what's happening in your mind, the areas that you can control. You should be driving out the enemies where you are strong, where the Lord is leading you and directing you. You should be cleansing your house from sin, from unrighteousness, from filth. But you don't. But you don't. How you know how I can say that? Because you're a filthy sinner like I am. Just like Paul. We're all people of like passion. So we need to have the Lord do it. We need the Lord to be with us and to work through us and, and to yield and to humble ourselves. And then, watch, you'll have great victories. How many pages to the left are we? from when they drove out all of the armies of the Canaanite in the battle in the south and in the north? How many more pages are we from the victories of Moses when they rose the hands up to continue the battle? How many pages are we from the sun standing still in the middle of the day for victory? Not very many, not very many. And then finally, how many days has it been since you had that great moment of revelation, your salvation? Since you had great victories in Christ, where you were cleansing things and changing things and changing your, your, the language coming out of your mouth as the Lord changed your heart. But we let the Canaanites, the things of this world, start to sneak back in. Well, stop it. Stop it. And Now in verse 30. Don't worry, guys. It only gets worse from here. <laughs> Nor did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Naholol. So the Canaanites dwelt among them and were put under tribute. Nor did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Koh, or the inhabitants of Sidon, or Elab, Akzib, Elba, Afik, or Rehob. So the Asherites dwell among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Verse 30. Three, excuse me, 33, nor did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath, but they dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath were put under tribute to them. And the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountains, for they would not allow them to come down to the valley. And the Amorites were determined to dwell in Mount Jerez, in Ajalon, and in Shalabim. Yet when the strength of the house of Joseph became greater, they were put under tribute. Now the boundary of the Amorites was from the ascent of Akrabim, from Selah, Selah, and upward. Nor did they, nor did they, nor did they, nor did they. And we see it over and over again. I said earlier that they didn't chase them out of the Valley of Megiddo. Why did that matter? The Valley of Megiddo is where Armageddon is going to happen in the future. Megiddo is where they will have idolatry, idol worship, specifically to a God in which they will sacrifice their children, the nation of Israel, for pleasure so that they can... uh, Exercise their sexuality. And so they will sacrifice these children in this valley, and it becomes a, a name that is synonymous with hell, Sheol. This hell place in the nation of, history, of Israel. It is so dirty, it is so disgusting, the smells are so bad there. And that is why Jesus, when he returns, After the seven-year tribulation, and we come with him on white horses, he defeats his enemy in the valley of Megiddo. He pours out his wrath in this place. And there's a purpose, because in our flesh dwells no good thing. And in our own power, in our own flesh, we can do nothing. No man seeks after God. No, not one. And if you're left to yourself without any outside influences you will dr- you will drift every time to sin you will drift every time to the world no one listen christian no one drifts to righteousness no one drifts to being more obedient to the lord we will always drift into the rocks every time you always have to fight against the flesh so why do you act like you're just going to stumble into victory. Notice here that when it says, nor did they, nor did he," what happened to the tribe of Dan? It said the tribe of Dan, not only did they not chase the enemies out of their area, they were the ones that were chased out. Did they ask God for help? Did they ask the Lord for victory? Did they ask the Lord for any way to handle it? No. They were driven out because they were weak and they were handling it in their own power. What is the reason for us, for you, for me? Inaction? Ignorance? You just don't think it's a big deal? Laziness? You know it's probably going to be a problem, but it's a problem you can handle tomorrow. Is it pride? I'll just take care of it when I feel like it. I got it under control. Over and over and over, the pages of Scripture show us. When David sinned with Bathsheba, where was he? not in the battle where he was supposed to be. Contrast that to, to Caleb, who is in his hundreds of years, and he's driving out giants. We have to be very active in our faith to seek after the Lord, to put on his righteousness, to put on Christ, as Paul would say. You have to be active in your faith. You have to be pressing as he draws you, and you need to be filled with his spirit, and his desires. He will give you that. The book of Hebrews, it tells us that Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. You can't even make your own faith. But you act like it's just going to come naturally. Like, oh, it'll, it'll just come to me one day and I'll be back on fire for the Lord again. No. No. In the book of Jude, it tells us that we are to keep yourselves in the love of God. His love never fails. Ask And it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Seek and you shall find. Active, active, active. So start pressing in. Pressing in knowing that the Lord will give you the faith. He will give you the Holy Spirit. He will give you the Word of God. He will give you encouragement. But you have to go after it. You're not going to start suddenly reading the Bible in the morning any more than you're suddenly going to start eating wheat bran or whatever we're supposed to eat to be healthy these days over cupcakes, if you leave me alone in a room by myself and there is cupcakes and wheat bran, I guarantee you, if except for the Lord's intervention, I will be knee-deep in cupcake wrappers and frosting around my face because we always drift to the weaker, to the flesh. It's no different in our faith. It's no different in our walk with Christ. Are you being driven out of victories that God has granted you? Are you giving over areas to the enemy? And are there areas in your life that you're supposed to be victorious in and you're just too lazy to go get it or trying to do it in your own strength? That's the message that we're going to see in the book of Judges as we continue. Chapter after chapter, year after year. I don't use this phrase very often because I try not to. But in closing, for many of us, many, some of you, you may have been in years of just dormancy, years of just waiting, years of spiritual life support. That's over. That's over. Awaken. Be filled with a fresh feeling of the Holy Spirit this evening. Pray to receive it. Seek after the Lord as we spend time with him this evening. Make a change knowing that you must seek after the Lord. You must walk by faith. And then he will supply. He will give you the power. He will do the work. So let's pray. Lord, we lift you up this evening. We pray you're magnified and glorified knowing that apart from you we can do nothing. We pray, Lord, that you would encourage us this evening, that you would set us back on fire, that we would be victorious in Christ. Fill our sails with your Spirit. Fill us with a fresh helping of faith, a fresh desire, Lord, to seek after godly things. And help us to crucify the flesh and its lust for us. Help us to be victorious as only you can. And forgive us, Lord, these works of the flesh. Forgive us for our stumbles and our falls. And we pray that you would be glorified as we begin to run this race to win once again. In Jesus' name, amen.